morning. So we're studying the book of Acts, which is a spread of the gospel throughout the first century, which is pretty fascinating to watch this good news of Jesus Christ flow out of his life into what at first was an extremely small group of adherents to this faith. As Christians early on embraced the gospel, they were not known as Christians. There was no such thing as Christianity. In fact, when they embraced this idea, uh, they were actually considered to be uh, a part of an irreligion. They were irreligious to the Roman people of the day. And so it was a small sect in a small part of the world geographically that started to believe a very radical message. One scholar, Rodney Stark, said this, how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? How did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization. He asked that as a question, and we are seeking to find that answer as we study the book of Acts this fall. We have looked so far at the first couple chapters in Acts as we saw Christ in his ascension. We saw Christ's commission for his people to be his witnesses. We've seen the presence and the fuller manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and we've looked last week at the marks Uh, classically, of what the church is to be about. Well, we continue that study this morning in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, who were primary players in the development of first century Christianity, have healed a lame beggar who is hanging outside of the temple. This lame beggar outside of the temple was actually asking for money, and Peter and John, in a non-super spiritual way, said, we'll give you something better than money. They didn't hand him a track then. Uh, They healed him. And as a result of that, he came to faith in Christ. However, this was quite controversial. As the gospel was spreading in the midst of this pagan Roman world, it was very radical and very controversial. And so in the wake of that healing, Peter preaches a sermon that we're going to consider this morning from Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Stand with me, if you will, for a slightly elongated reading of God's word this morning. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Whom, delivered, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through, Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers also. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, this his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. 
that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for his restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. I had the privilege a few years ago when I was working as a minister on campus of interacting with an exchange student from France named Claire. And it was a privilege to know her because she was delightful and she was an architecture major. They were my favorite because I always wanted to study architecture and they really loved their studies and it's a fantastic school. But Claire was on a spiritual journey of awakening and it was a privilege to be able to walk alongside of her in that both uh, with the ministry that I was leading, which was a campus ministry, and then also the church where I was going that she was attending. And one Sunday when she had, in a sense, become alive, not dissimilar to the way in which the story I read last week in which Anne Lamott came alive to faith in Christ through her chronicle of that and traveling mercies, Claire writes this to the pastor of the church where we were. After listening to your sermon today, I realized that I ought to let you know how much the Sunday services and the church as a whole have meant to me in the past months. I am relatively new to the Christian faith, although raised very Christian-like. I was never baptized and never in much contact with it. It was last year around this time when I realized I had probably believed in God all along and that I started what you might call a spiritual journey. Eventually, it led me to a Bible at a used bookstore. I read through the entire thing on my own. It is now full of notes and highlighted passages and marked pages. I was terrified of going to church. I was afraid that I wouldn't be welcomed and afraid that people might throw too much at me too fast. Being in the South, Christianity looked like some sort of elite club of which you had no part unless you grew up within it. And I had always thought that Christianity came with rules and constraints, that I would be less free to dream and imagine, that it would give me walls instead of windows, realizing that I was wrong, had never made me so happy. Eventually, because of some of the most intelligent and open-minded people I knew, I attended your church and actually liked it. I chanced a visit, and then she chronicles some personal sufferings that were going on in her own life and her family, and then she concluded sharing about those with this. So that Sunday, I sat in the back, and I just wanted to hear someone tell a story that they believed in. Well, the gospel is a story 
that these early disciples, like Peter, believed in. And as a result of Peter believing in this story, God, by His Holy Spirit, used his belief in his passion to become infectious and viral to others. As the gospel was beautiful in its progress, let's say, in Peter's own life, in John's own life, in other early adopters to Christianity's own life, as it became beautiful to them, as they believed this story more deeply, it became compelling to others for them to believe it. Do you have a story that you believe in? Everybody has a story. Everybody has a narrative that guides their life. Sometimes that narrative might not be intentional. Sometimes it might be more subtle. But we all are following a thread. We all are following a narrative. I would offer to you yet again this morning the narrative of the gospel, which is a proclamation that says, if you think you're bad, you're far worse than you've ever imagined, so cheer up. If you think that you are loved, you're far more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than you've ever dared to dream, so cheer up. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the story that Claire that day heard a preacher believe in. And as a result of that, it compelled her to believe. Well, Peter today in Acts chapter 3 is another preacher speaking about this same story in a way that was compelling to him and as a result of that became compelling to others. And I want us to see that this morning. I want us to see in an overarching way that the gospel is progressing. The gospel was progressing in Peter's own life and the gospel was progressing throughout society and culture in the first century. And the way that I want us to look at the progress of the gospel is actually want us to examine and unpack Peter's sermon, which I think is actually a model sermon. Now, as a preacher who preaches sermons every week, it's a little bit fearful to put before you what I would call a model sermon because then from this point forward, you're going to be able to judge my sermons relative, let's say, to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3, which is not perfection. He's a human just like me and just like you, but Peter's sermon is a testimony in an overarching way that the gospel is progressing. The gospel is moving. The beauty of the gospel is contagious, and as a result of that, Peter preaches a sermon that is first of all Christ-centered, that is secondly convicting and compelling at the same time, and then thirdly is covenantal. See how I did that? Christ-centered, convicting, and compelling simultaneously, and then lastly, thirdly, it is covenantal. But before we examine in more detail Peter's sermon, I think it would be helpful for us to look at the preacher himself. Not long, but briefly. So before we look at the message, let's look at the messenger. Who was Peter? Peter was a fisherman. Peter was one of these people that was radically called out of one thing into another thing. Peter was drawn by Jesus one day in the midst of going about his business, in the midst of going about his normal life, and Jesus tells Peter and others to drop their nets, that they no longer will be fishing for fish. He wants them to come with him and to fish for men. And so Peter, the text tells us, dropped his net 
immediately and followed Christ. Well, what would ensue over the next three years is Peter having a relationship with Jesus, arguably, that was closer than any other person. Without question, it seems pretty clear in the Gospels that Peter, James, and John are mentioned more than any of the other disciples. Peter, James, and John, in a very real way, were in the inner ring with Christ. And arguably, Peter was the closest. Peter is the one. His name, Petros, means rock. Peter is at some of the most characteristic, historical, and monumental stories throughout the biographies of Jesus that we refer to as the Gospels. Peter is the one who walked on water. Think about that. He was just a normal man. He walked on water. Peter was the rock. Michael Card, actually, in response to that, the the singer-songwriter, calls Peter a fragile stone. Peter is amazing because Peter is us. Peter blurts out a lot. Peter gets things wrong all the time. And then there's these rare moments where he gets things right. Like at the great statement of faith in the Gospels, when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And he got that right. Peter was there at the transfiguration. Peter was there with Jesus because he was his best friend all the way to the bitter end when the going got tough, the tough got going. Or not. That's not what happened. Jesus' closest friend, Peter, at Jesus' most significant time in his life, which was his death, Peter, the water walker, the rock, the professor of who is Christ, at Jesus' most monumental, significant moment in his life, Peter, and Jesus predicted this, denies Jesus three times. Finally, in the end, arguably using potential expletives to a young 12 to 14-year-old girl who has no real pressure with Peter, but Peter, even to her, says, I actually don't even know who you're talking about. And then Jesus dies on the cross. Let me just ask you a question. What do you think it felt like to be Peter at that moment? You've spent three of the most fantastic years of your life with this guy that is um, the Messiah, fully man, fully God, You've given your life to him. You've had these fantastical moments at his death in public. You deny that you even know him. And then he's put to death by state execution on a Roman cross. What do you think it felt like to be Peter? Mark chapter 16, verse 2 says, Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples. And Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Mark 16, verse 7 
two words that are gospel proclamation. Hey, yeah, go tell the disciples. And by the way, especially tell Peter that the Christ is risen. Can you imagine how transformative that was for Peter, the denier, to hear the gospel in the words, and Peter. He would never be the same. And so in Acts 3, we find this man who would never be the same. Doesn't mean that he's perfect. We actually get to look at a fun story later this fall where Peter messes up again. That's why I love Peter. But at this moment, that and Peter is fueling a fire within his soul that is burning throughout the first century in a way where the beauty of the gospel is so contagious it cannot be stopped. And so this and Peter preaches the second sermon we see in the book of Acts this morning. And the first thing we see about Peter's sermon, as I already referenced, is that it's Christ-centered. And this is significant to say the least. We see that Peter quickly defers the attention off himself and John from the healing and also in his words by saying, hey, let me just get this straight from the very beginning. This has nothing to do with me. That has nothing to do with John. It's not about my power. And the text tells us it's not about my piety or his holiness, right? Like it's not about how good Peter's quiet times were or how rich his prayer life was or what kind of power he was able to channel within himself. He said, let it just be known from the very beginning, this is about Jesus. Always has been, is now, and always will be. You can definitely hold me to this standard I'm not saying I always meet this standard, but like this is the standard for a sermon always. Sermons must be Christ-centered. Charles Spurgeon, the great British Reformed Baptist preacher of the 19th century said, whatever subject I preach, I do not stop preaching until... I reach the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for in Him are all things. Spurgeon's like, whatever I'm preaching on, I'm not finished preaching until we get to Jesus. And that's what Peter's doing. Peter's saying, look, this sermon, my words to you are all about Christ. That's why every sermon should be a gospel sermon. I don't know the tradition religiously that you grew up in, in, but if you grew up in the South, regardless of what particular religious tradition or denomination, or even not, the cloak of religiosity exists in the atmosphere. And in the midst of that atmosphere, I grew up in a context where I would hear people refer to sermons and make these distinctions that at the time seemingly made sense, but as I went on later, and especially started to study and then become a preacher myself, and then particularly enter into a program um, where the homiletics department, that's the study of preaching, was actually called Christ-centered preaching. That was a good thing. Um, But prior to that, I grew up in a context 
where people would say, hey, 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 you really need to come tonight because tonight, as if like tonight and tonight only, he's going pre- to present and preach the gospel. As if like that's a novel thing. Hey, you really need to come to this camp, this conference, because at this camp and at this conference, but not on a regular basis and definitely not on Sunday mornings, and not, but at this camp, you need to come because they're going to preach the gospel. Familiar to anybody? Well, the more we read the scriptures and the more we understand about the preaching, this is the basic truth. If you're not preaching the gospel, you're not preaching all the time, always, ever. And here Peter shows us right out of the gates really the first and foundational component of a sermon that matters that will progress the gospel in its beauty and contagiousness throughout the world, needs to start, be with, and end with Christ. Why? Because that's true about our lives too. What's true about this sermon is true about our lives. It's the way in which God made us. Peter not only says, look, it's not about my power or my holiness, it's about Jesus and His power. Not to us be the glory, but to Him be the glory. Psalm 115.1 Peter even specifically identifies particular things about Jesus in this. He calls him a Nazarene. He calls him a servant. And an interesting thing about Peter saying here as a servant, he's quoting from Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant. It's a servant song in Isaiah 53. And the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but it was translated into the Greek. And that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And guess what word is used for servant in Isaiah 43? In the Greek, in the Septuagint. The same word that Peter uses in Acts chapter 3. Peter is recalling this historic text in Isaiah 53 as he's centered on Christ and he's centered on Christ the servant. He's a Nazarene. He's a servant. He's holy. He's righteous. And he's the author of life. Peter's sermon, to be sure, is Christ-centered which is important. You know why? Because contrary to popular belief, Christianity is not primarily about what you have done or what you must do. Christianity is not at its foundation or core. It's not about what you have done or what you must do. Christianity at its foundation and core is fundamentally about who Christ is, what He has done, and what He is doing. It's not about us. It's about Him. And Peter knew that. And so his sermon was Christ-centered. His sermon also was convicting. And at the same time, as a result of being convicting, it was compelling and comforting. George Whitfield, the great preacher from the 18th century of the Great Awakening, who was a fantastic example of a preacher on so many levels. I read recently, in fact, in the 18th century, around the mid-1700s, in Boston, when George Whitfield preached at Boston Common, he preached to some 23,000-plus people, by the way, like with no amplification. He did this all the time. He was this unbelievable theatrical orator. But in Boston Common, at one point in the, in the 1750s, 
They said that over 23,000 people came on Boston Common to hear George Whitfield preach. And at that time, it was said to have been the largest gathering ever of people, period, in America. Can you imagine that? George Whitfield, speaking of a sermon being convicting, says this. And is this at the front of your bulletin, by the way? This is very liberating for me. Just as a side note, as a preacher, George Whitfield says, It's a poor sermon that offers no offense, that neither makes the hearer displeased with himself nor with the preacher. What's another characteristic of a good sermon? It's meant to ruffle your feathers on some level. One scholar says that Jesus Christ came to disturb everything that he confronts. Jesus Christ came to disturb everything. That he confronts. Well, Peter's sermon, to say the least, even on the first hearing, and you ought to read it again, is very disturbing. Peter, in no way, is ashamed, as ashamed as he was at Christ's death, that and Peter moment, and then what followed after that, gave Peter, and actually we'll look at this in more depth next week when we look at Peter and John's boldness as they were arrested for what's going on right here. But at this moment, Peter is not shy. Peter is not afraid to use the second person plural pronoun you for the people that he's talking to. They're like, what in the world's going on? Oh, it's Jesus. That's what's going on. Jesus is the one that did this. You remember Jesus? You killed him. I mean, like, how do you think that's set with the crowd? Like, how, how would that go on a marquee, you know, for, for like church growth and marketing? Um, come worship the Jesus that you killed. And by the way, as a quick side note, I know these things get political and controversial. Uh, Peter is talking primarily to Jews here, but surely you understand that Jews and Gentiles in the day that killed Jesus, literally and figuratively speaking, every person in here killed Jesus. But Peter, at this point, still wants to reckon with them and let them know, hey, you know who I'm talking about. He's the author of life. You thought you could kill him, but he's been resurrected. As a result of doing that, Peter, in verse 19, calls them to repentance. And I want to look here at verses 19 through 21 Uh, just for a few minutes to see this aspect of Peter's sermon. And this is where it moves from being convicting to being compelling to ultimately being comforting. Verse 19, Peter says, as a result of this, here's what you need to do. Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The literal understanding here of repentance is the idea to flee. Flee from yourself and flee to God. That's what it means to repent. To repent means not only to be aware of your sin, but it means literally to turn away from your sin to God. And what's the purpose of repentance? That your sins would be blotted out. This is good news. Peter is offering them a clean slate So Martin Luther was a great reformer uh, in the 16th century in Germany, 15th century in Germany, um, on the 
precipice in the front end of the Protestant Reformation, to say the least, prior to Martin Luther starting to accurately read Romans and see that the righteousness that God required, he did not demand of him, but he gave to him. And that was an amazingly liberating moment for Martin Luther because he was a fastidious monk prior to that, living under the oppression at that time of the Roman Catholic faith in the way that it was manifested then. And then Luther tasted the gospel, and it was an amazing experience for him. And Luther talks about a vision and a dream that he had post-conversion of what his life was like prior to his repentance and faith and new life in the gospel. And Luther says, it was as if I lived my life with this chalkboard above my head. And every time I thought something wrong, it got written on there. Every time I did something wrong, it got written on there. Every time I said something wrong, it was written on the chalkboard. And he talked about that life of turmoil and guilt. Waking up every day with a moral hangover. Because of this chalkboard above his head that was indicting him with shame and with guilt. He said, that's what my life was like. Which I think we can all relate with, whether you're in Christ or not. But he said the vision continued, and he said there was a blackboard, and there was a hand that wrote everything I ever did wrong on it. However, the vision continued with another hand, except this hand was not holding a piece of chalk. It was holding a rag soaked in blood, and this hand had scars in it from nails. And the second hand followed the first hand and wiped everything away that the first hand wrote on the board. Luther said, that's what it was like for me to come to Christ. I got a clean slate. Well, that's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, repent, because repentance gives us and moves us towards new life in Christ. It moves us towards a clean slate. We need to repent of the things that we have done wrong, sins of unrighteousness, We need to turn from our self-righteousness, older brother, younger brother stuff. We actually even need to repent threefold of things that we have not done that that we are called to do. So we repent of sins of unrighteousness, we repent of sins of self-righteousness, and then we also repent of sins of omission, things that we should do that we haven't done. And that's a lot. That's why Luther went on to say, all of life is repentance. Like we never outgrow repentance, which is another way of saying is we never outgrow the gospel. It's our permanent street address. We own repentance always, which matters in all things in life. But I was in a conversation just with some friends over the weekend about parenting. And I have another friend who's a counselor and wise, and he repeatedly tells me, and I tell him, if you're wrong about this, I'm in real trouble, but I think you're right about this. He said, the best gift you can give to your kids as a parent is your repentance. The best gift you can give to your kids is your repentance. I think that's true really for all relationships. So Peter didn't only call him to repentance, but Peter also calls him to refreshment and restoration in this sense where it moves from being convicting to being comforting. Look at, look at verses 20 and 21 with me. So he says, repent, well, we'll go back to 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. 
that at times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. This is what's amazing about the trajectory of the gospel. The trajectory of the gospel is come to Christ in honesty. Come to Christ in repentance. Come to Christ asking for new life, and guess what? You receive it. Our repentance leads to refreshment, and that refreshment ultimately, as Peter says, leads to the restoration of all things. And so Peter's sermon is not only Christ-centered, it's convicting, but it's ultimately comforting. Because repentance leads to refreshment, and refreshment leads towards the restoration of all things. And then the last component of Peter's sermon, it's Christ-centered, it's convicting, yet comforting. And then lastly, Peter's sermon is covenantal. A covenant is something that is spoken of often throughout the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. And to be honest, it's hard for us to fully conceptualize the idea of a covenant. The covenant is, or a covenant, is an agreement. A covenant is a pact. A covenant is a promise. But a covenant is also all embodied in a relationship. And Peter wants to espouse and speak the truth of this pact and this promise and this agreement that is within the context of a relationship, and this is what's beautiful about Peter's sermon, that started all the way back with Abraham. And so Peter in this sermon draws this beautiful thread and line all the way back from the Old Testament prophets as he mentions Abraham and Moses and Samuel leading all the way to Christ and the promise we have with him. N.T. Wright says this, Peter is understanding the Old Testament as a single great story, which was constantly putting forwards, pointing forwards to something that God was going to do through Abraham and his family, something that Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, and the rest were pointing on towards as well. This great something was the restoration of all things, the time when everything would be put right at last. And now, he says, it's happened. It's happened in Jesus, and you can be a part of it. And that's really where I want to end us this morning. This covenantal aspect of Peter's sermon speaks about the continuity that exists in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The continuity continuity that exists from the Old Testament prophets to Jesus in the New Testament. A now new and even better covenant relationship and pact and agreement that was established in the Old Testament and the covenant story that will continue where God says, you are my people and I am your God. And this is the story. And the story goes on and on and on to today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Peter. I particularly thank you for him as I am grateful for people like him in the scriptures that are clearly not the way they're supposed to be, but are clearly in the process 
of being restored and renewed and remade. We do pray that we would in our own lives embody that which is put forth in Peter's sermon. We also pray that we as a church would embody these things, and I pray specifically even personally for me that we can week out that which I say from your word would embody the truth of the gospel and the centrality of Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.